there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In August of 1590, two English ships dropped anchor off the coast of modern-day North Carolina. The hot sun beat down on their tired crews. They were relieved to be in close proximity to land, particularly John White. White couldn't help but look longingly towards the shores. Seeing small plumes of smoke climbing into the sky, he smiled. They signaled the location of his daughter and granddaughter. It had been almost three years since White returned home to England to gather more supplies for the colony. Tomorrow, he would finally be reunited with his family and the other hundred settlers he governed. Unfortunately, it was too late in the day to venture inland, so they spent their final night aboard the ship celebrating. They drank, played trumpets, and sang, hoping the colonists would hear. When morning came, White and some of his crew took rowboats through a narrow inlet that led them ashore to Roanoke. But as White approached the village, his heart sank. The fires he had seen the previous night were burning grass. The fruit trees were rotting, all of the homes completely dismantled. Just a stockpile of weapons was left behind. Every single person was gone. It was as if the colonists vanished into thin air. The only clue left behind was a single word carved into a tree. It read, Croatoan. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first episode on the Lost Roanoke Colony. Originally founded in 1585, it was meant to be the first permanent English settlement in the United States until sometime around 1590, when all of its inhabitants mysteriously disappeared. This week, we'll take a look at the origins of the Roanoke Colony. We'll see how the first colony was originally established as a privateering hub, but after supplies ran thin and relationships with the native tribes were strained, the men returned to England. They were then replaced by families who immigrated to Roanoke in 1587 with hopes of starting a new life under the governance of John White, a painter and explorer. Next week, we'll explore a few theories on what could actually have happened to the Roanoke colony. Some believe that the members of the Roanoke colony may have died from unexpected disease, famine, or drought. Others suggest that the message Croatoan indicates that the settlers might have assimilated with the local tribes. And finally, we'll explore the possibility that the colonists migrated north by taking a look at some mysterious stones known as the Dare Stones, which may be the secret to unlocking their lost history. Twenty-three years before the establishment of Jamestown and the 13 British colonies now making up the eastern United States, there was a quaint little settlement known as the Roanoke Colony. English explorers had been making voyages to North America since 1497, but it wasn't until the 1580s that England started toying with the idea of colonization. A settlement in North America could service some bigger needs, like acting as a hub for ships who were seizing wealth from the Spanish and French fleets in the Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean Sea, also known as privateers. A privateer refers to a privately owned, typically armed vessel that was paid by the government to attack enemy ships. It also refers to the men who sailed them. They usually required a base on land that would allow them to resupply their ships somewhere close enough to enemy territory to be effective. Privateers were then entitled to a portion of that treasure while they returned the rest to the monarchy. The only difference between a privateer and a pirate? The privateers were sharing the loot. England saw merit in establishing a base close to the activity so their privateer ships wouldn't need to return all the way to England to rebuild or rest. America seemed like the best place. And the best man for the job was Sir Walter Raleigh. Despite his utter lack of experience, Raleigh was a respected gentleman and a close companion to Queen Elizabeth I. In her mind, he was the natural pick. So Raleigh got to work orchestrating the first colony in America. In 1584, 30-year-old Raleigh sent out a scouting expedition to what is now the Outer Banks of North Carolina. It was led by Captain Arthur Barlow and Captain Philip Amadis, while Raleigh stayed behind. Their goal was to determine the most fruitful and conveniently located piece of land. They arrived back in England later that year with good news. They had found an island with lands lush enough to live upon. Barlow even brought back two Native Americans he had befriended along the way, Manio from the Croatoan tribe and Wanchis from the Algonquian tribe. 
Queen Elizabeth was so pleased with the expedition's results that she granted Raleigh an exclusive patent for all of North America's colonization, which meant no one else could sail there without Raleigh's permission. In 1585, Queen Elizabeth knighted Raleigh and asked him to call the territory Virginia in her honor. There was just one problem. She refused to let Raleigh go to sea. The queen had taken a strong liking to Raleigh and preferred he stay by her side when his ship set sail for the New World. Raleigh was less than pleased with the decision, but it was a royal order. In his place, he appointed his cousin Sir Richard Grenville to be the general of the expedition and a man named Sir Ralph Lane to be the governor. On April 9, 1585, five ships left the port city of Plymouth on the southern tip of England. They were led by their flagship, the Tiger. The fleet would sail past the Canary Islands via the West Indies before making their final stop in North Carolina. The 600 men aboard these ships would be the very first English colonists to settle in North America. Most were veterans of the Irish and European wars, chosen because they had the skills to defend the colony. But for Manio and Wanchis, who were now returning home with the colonists, the presence of these hard-headed soldiers was a bit unsettling. But it wasn't just brawn that would occupy the new land. There was also a team of experts among the crew. Raleigh's plans called for engineers and surveyors to oversee the construction of the village. He also called for carpenters, masons, physicians, surgeons, a geographer, and a painter. They were in it for the long haul. But the ships weren't more than halfway through their journey when a terrible storm separated the fleet. One of the rowboats on the Tiger was completely destroyed, which meant when they arrived, getting to shore would be a lot harder. As a result, the Tiger detoured, making a brief stop in Puerto Rico to repair the ship. This took almost 10 days before the ship could set sail again. By the time the Tiger finally arrived in Roanoke on June 26, 1585, the other ships were waiting for it just offshore. Since the vessels weighed over 160 tons each, they had to anchor far off the coast and use their rowboats to get further inland. But before they could empty the ships of their supplies, the Tiger was caught up in a terrible coastal storm and suffered severe damage. The colonists lost more than half of their provisions. It was a disaster. The men felt a sense of doom before they could even settle on Roanoke Island. There now weren't enough resources to feed everyone for a year as initially planned. Not to mention the location wasn't as ideal as Barlow and Amadis had made it seem. The banks were shallow and the storms were frequent. It would make their privateering efforts difficult. Governor Lane wondered if Roanoke Island should be a jumping off point to find more suitable grounds inland. After all, they had investors to please, but for the moment, they stayed put. By August, the Tiger was repaired and ready to return to England for more supplies. Lane and 100 men stayed behind to develop and sustain the colony. But given their diminished supplies, they needed to learn to live off the land. While the crews were preparing to return to England, Raleigh was preparing to send a second fleet to join the colonists in America. If he timed it right, they would arrive with supplies just as the others departed. 
But days before the second fleet was supposed to set sail for America, the Queen forced Raleigh to divert his ships to Newfoundland. She declared war against Spain. As a result, that secondary fleet never made its way west to relieve Lane and the early Roanoke colony. Maybe if it had, their entire fate would have changed. Coming up, things take a dark turn when the Englishmen start to force their way of life upon the local Native Americans. Now, back to the story. In 1585, Queen Elizabeth approved the first expedition to colonize America. 600 men sailed west to set up a base to host privateers. But within days of arriving in Roanoke, the settlers lost most of their provisions in a storm. Many were forced to cut their visit short and return to England to restock. Only a hundred men remained to maintain the colony under the guidance of Governor Ralph Lane. Roanoke Island is located about 65 miles south of the current border of Virginia. It was hardly an ideal location for agricultural development, but the hundred remaining colonists believed, at least at first, that this plot of land was enough. To them, the land was lush with oak, cedar, and maple, all perfect for building. There were fruit trees, berry bushes, and grapevines during the warm months. The colonists felt confident that if they were smart about their rations, they could last until winter when the fleets were scheduled to return. Sir Walter Raleigh had drafted up blueprints for the settlements. The colonists were to build a small market square in the center of the town. Around that, they would build a five-sided fort for protection. Their homes were made of timber and designed to be easily dismantled, just in case the colony needed to take them down and rebuild them at a new location. If all went according to plan, building the structures would only take a month. Except modern archaeologists believe the settlers didn't follow Raleigh's plans at all. It's unclear why, but the settlers actually built their homes outside of the fort. Only the marketplace and principal buildings were inside, making their homes the most vulnerable should enemies arise. It must not have mattered to them. At this point in time, the only enemies the settlers could foresee were the Spanish and Mother Nature. But as the months passed and winter drew near, the settlers began to panic. Supplies were running low. Crops were dying off. Things were getting desperate. But luckily... Neighboring tribes recognized their struggles. They began to offer help with basic survival needs. Thanks to the previous expedition, the settlers had already developed a bit of a relationship with the Algonquian and Croatoan tribes. You may recall Croatoan from the beginning of this episode. It's the name of both the southern island and the tribe who lived there. Luckily for the settlers, they had Manio and Wanchis, representatives from each of those tribes who were able to bridge the gap between natives and settlers. The Algonquians had occupied the land for more than 800 years. There were about 10 different Algonquian villages in the Outer Banks region, and at least one of them was stationed on Roanoke Island. And they welcomed the English settlers with open arms. They shared their food, helped them fish, and offered their labor, all while expecting nothing in return. 
The colonists would have died that winter had it not been for the kindness of the local tribes. But communication was still a problem. Luckily, some of Raleigh's experts who chose to remain in Roanoke had also taken an interest in spending time with the Algonquian tribe to better understand their language and way of life. Two of those experts were cartographer and painter John White and scientist and mathematician Thomas Harriet. Together, they planned to study the Algonquians and decided they would create a report on their findings. Hopefully, this information could educate the people of England, or more specifically, their financial backers, on their experience with the tribes. They would also include things like plants, animals, medicines, Algonquian traditions, culture, religion, and so on. As the colonists waited for supplies, Harriet dedicated himself to learning the Algonquian language. He also taught Manio and Wanchese English, since they knew very few words, in hopes that they could become translators. Meanwhile, White painted portraits and scenes of the local tribespeople to give an accurate depiction of their way of life. The Algonquians were not a nomadic tribe. They lived in and settled villages with upwards of 200 people. They would hunt, fish, and gather provisions like roots, nuts, and shellfish. And while the Europeans struggled to grow grains, the Algonquians had bountiful harvests of beans, pumpkins, corn, even tobacco. Harriet took a special interest in the tobacco leaf and its connection to the Algonquian religion. It allegedly connected them to their higher powers. Like the Puritan colonists, the Algonquian believed in the immortality of the soul, heaven, and hell. Perhaps the two groups weren't so different after all. But Harriet and White were more fascinated by how religion and politics overlapped in Algonquian tradition. Concepts like heaven and hell were allegedly heavily incorporated into their political system. And now, Harriet and White were curious to find out whether the Algonquian population could be manipulated in the Englishman's favor. During this time, it was common for Native American chiefs to control an average of seven different villages, which meant they had thousands of people under their leadership. The colonists eventually came to the unsettling reality that the local tribes were capable of gathering upwards of 800 men if they wanted to retaliate against the English. But the Algonquians now had their own set of concerns, and those concerns were starting to affect internal relations amongst the tribe. The Algonquian villages that came into contact with the settlers were starting to build an advantage over the other communities. The villages were supposed to be equals, but instead, the tribes with the English goods were using it as an upper hand on the rest of the community by controlling the distribution of European goods through trade. This forced the Algonquians to question whether they should continue a relationship with the English at all. Many of the Algonquian tribes in the region were reportedly split over this issue. Alliances began to form. The Algonquian system of justice was to find a balance between all parties in order to maintain peace amongst its people by any means necessary. If one tribesman did something wrong, his entire tribe would also be held responsible. Oftentimes, a punishment for a crime was brought justice by the same action, an eye for an eye. But the English had a different outlook. 
To them, gaining power was more important than gaining justice, balance, peace, or harmony, even on lands that weren't their own. And after nine months on the island, the English mentality began to fester. The colonists didn't care that the Algonquians had saved their lives and fed them when they were starving. They were only concerned with their own well-being and didn't bat an eye when they saw them suffering. And they certainly didn't come to the rescue when disease started to infect the local tribes. By the 1500s, millions of Europeans had died from smallpox, plague, and typhoid. Infant and child mortality was extremely high, so those who had lived past youth were now immune to the diseases. So they had no idea that they brought these viruses over to America. But the Native Americans were now dying by the hundreds thanks to the colonists. It wasn't uncommon for an entire village to be wiped out after a visit from a single colonist. The devastation was unfathomable. So unfathomable that both the colonists and the natives saw this as an act of God. But their explanations were, of course, very different. To the Algonquian, it was an inexplicable curse. But the colonists believed that God was striking down the Native Americans because the local tribes had made plans to conspire against the English. Thus far, the Algonquians had only been accommodating to the Englishmen, welcomed them onto their land with open arms, and worked hard to maintain peace among their new neighbors. But now, they felt the Englishmen had repaid them with a curse. The local tribes had a tough decision to face. They wondered if it was best to maintain peace with the colonists, or perhaps it was time to fight back. By March of 1586, less than a year after their arrival, the Native Americans had enough. The Algonquian drew up a plan that would order their tribesmen to stop all contact with the English. Governor Lane caught wind of the plan and started to worry over just how dangerous things might get. He told his men to separate and live off the land until Grenville was scheduled to return with supplies in about a month. He convinced everyone to stay out of the way of the Algonquian for now. But as they did, it became increasingly clear just how dependent they were on the tribes to survive. The Algonquians had stopped supplying the settlement with food and provisions entirely. They took it a step farther when they appeared in the colony at night and removed the fish from the traps and disassembled them. They knew the colonists wouldn't have a clue how to repair them themselves. Manio and Wanchis, the colonists' Native American allies, were in a tough position. While Manio managed to remain neutral, Wanchis chose to side with his tribe. In fact, he began urging Algonquian tribal leaders to take more aggressive action against the settlement. And it's very possible that Wanchi's words were taken very seriously, because a new plan was developed. They were going to attack the colonists and murder Governor Lane along with his principal officers. But it wasn't just the Algonquians the English had problems with. They had also jeopardized relations with the Choanoke tribe, who occupied the land just outside of Roanoke. Lane and his men feared that the Choanokes might be the next group to threaten the colonists and decided to get ahead of it. They took the king of the tribe's son, Skiko, hostage as an insurance policy. 
One evening, in the quiet of the night, Skiko shared some news with his English captors. Not long before he was kidnapped, he had been dining with the leader of the Algonquians, Wingina, who later renamed himself Hamisapan to indicate his distrust for the settlers. It was here that Skiko learned about their planned attack on the colonists. The attack was set to take place on June 10th, 1586, which gave the colonists plenty of time to stop it. So Lane came up with his own strategy. He got word to Pamisapan that the English were heading south to Croatoan Island, where they would meet the English fleet to leave. But of course, Lane had other plans. Lane and his men would actually make their way to the mainland, where Pamisapan was stationed. On their way, they could attack the Algonquian village on Roanoke Island. But to do that, they needed to make sure that no one could get away and warn the others they were coming. Lane instructed his men to steal all of the canoes, but his soldiers were caught in the act by the Algonquians. Their battle ensued prematurely. Four Algonquians were killed, while the rest fled the scene and went to alert Pamisapan. Even with his plan foiled, Lane was undeterred. The following morning, he and 25 of his men set off to the mainland to confront Pamisapan. Lane was welcomed into Pamisapan's circle with open arms. They were under the pretense that the colonists had come to discuss the release of Skiko and were happy to talk with the English. At some point during their discussion, Lane gave his men a signal, crying, Christ our victory. Then the colonists attacked the Native Americans and shot Pamisapan. Injured, Pamisapan took off into the woods, pursued by Lane's men. Moments later, Lane's men re-emerged from the woods with Pamisapan's detached head. After word of Pamisapan's murder spread, the colonists began to fear for their lives, but they didn't have to fear for long. A week after Pamisapan's demise, Captain Stafford caught the sight of 23 sails off the coast of Croatoan Island, where he was currently stationed. But there was no way for them to know if the men on board were allies or more enemies. Coming up, John White petitions for a new kind of colony on Roanoke. Now, back to the story. By spring of 1586, tensions were extremely high between the colonists of Roanoke and the local Native Americans. They had been on the island for 10 months, spreading disease amongst the Native tribes, trying to convert them to their monotheistic religion. Not to mention, the English governor had just murdered the Algonquian leader. So naturally, the colonists were now fearing retaliation. But soon, a set of sails appeared over the horizon. The sails of an unexpected visitor, Sir Francis Drake. And his presence would finally grant the colonists a bit of relief. Sea captain and privateer Sir Francis Drake was returning home to England from a fruitful expedition in the Dominican Republic. He brought with him a group of refugees and slaves, as well as provisions. Historians believe that long before his adventure even departed, Drake had plans to stop over at Roanoke Island. As one of the most notorious privateers, it's likely that the base was established with him in mind. By the time Drake dropped anchor and reached the colonists, it was close to June of 1856. 
It was then he learned about the colony's lack of supplies and their poor relations with the native tribes. At first, Drake offered to leave four months' supplies for the colonists before setting sail. But in time, Drake too became a victim of the island's misfortunes. On June 13th, a terrible hurricane blew over Roanoke Island that lasted almost four days. Several of Drake's boats and rowboats were destroyed. Others became unanchored and drifted out to sea. Once the weather subsided, Drake offered Lane one of the ships in his fleet to transport his men back to England. The colonists were desperate to leave Roanoke. If they stayed, they knew they had little chance of survival. They unanimously decided to take Drake's offer. Even Manio, their Croatoan companion, chose to go back to England with them. The colonists were so eager to abandon the island, they left behind most of their personal possessions, as well as three of their men who had not yet returned from a mission. Ironically, two weeks after Drake and the colonists set sail for England, Captain Grenville finally returned with a supply fleet. He searched for the colonists for a few days before giving up and returning to England with most of the supplies. But this wasn't the end for Roanoke. When the fleet returned to England in the summer of 1586, the investors' enthusiasm over Roanoke had died down. The mission was a flop. They had failed to establish a suitable base for the local privateers. But there was one former colonist who insisted they needed to go back to the island. That was the painter and cartographer John White. It's unclear why White was moved to return to America, but he made it clear that he believed in the colonization effort. At the end of 1586, he began to drum up interest for another expedition. This time, the colonists would consist of men, women, and children who were prepared to live the rest of their lives in this new land. White gathered more than a hundred people to return with him to Roanoke, where this time he would be the governor, and his friend Manio would once again return with them to his homeland to help. Among these new colonists was John White's 19-year-old pregnant daughter, Eleanor Dare, as well as her husband, Ananias Dare, a bricklayer and tiler. In the spring of 1587, the families met White in London and boarded one of the three ships sailing for the New World. It was around July 22, 1587, when the ships finally dropped anchor on the outer banks near Roanoke. White was pleased to find that the village they had built was still standing and required minimal repairs. It was their new home, and likely where they would spend the remainder of their days. White assured the colonists that this attempt would be different than the last. He was confident that their relations with the Native Americans would be better if they followed the guidance of Manio. But that confidence may have been naive. Only six days after their arrival, one of White's assistants, George Howe, was killed by a native in the woods. It was unclear to White if this was meant to threaten the new colonists or if Howe was accidentally shot after being mistaken for a deer. But either way, the colonists were shaken and decided to install new precautions. In an effort to clear the air and establish peace, White, Manio, and several other colonists went south to Croatoan Island, Manio's home. 
Here, the colonists and Croatoan people drew up new guidelines for future relations. The Croatoan offered to provide them with some corn, but their harvest was small and they would need to ration to survive winter. The natives then invited the colonists to a celebratory feast to break bread with the Englishmen. Both sides agreed that any unfriendly relations in the past should be forgiven. But with this promise came a confession on behalf of the Croatoans. George Howe had been murdered by Pamisapan's men, which included their former ally, Wanchis. So while peace had been made with the Croatoans, the colonists still had other enemy tribes to fear. By August, White decided he needed to avenge Howe's death and set a precedent. The English colonists would not stand for intimidation. At midnight on August 8, 1587, White, Manio, and 24 other colonists set out to stage an attack on the Algonquians. They spent the night on the mainland and waited till the following morning to make their move. Around dawn, they saw a group of natives gathered around a fire. White and his men grew closer and watched for a moment. Then, White signaled to attack. The colonists moved in and fired, but they weren't warriors. The natives were women and children, and they had no association with Pamisapan's men. But this didn't stop the men who were simply following White's orders. It's unknown how many innocents were injured or killed, but regardless, White was making himself a villain. Things were seemingly heading in a bleak direction. But on August 18th, a bit of hope appeared when a new life was brought to the colony of Roanoke. The first English child born in America was John White's granddaughter, Virginia Dare. By the end of the month, it was time for one of their ships to return to England and restock the supplies again. The colonists requested that at least two of White's assistants head back to influence investors and make sure the colonists were not forgotten. They were fearful the supplies would stop coming altogether. They knew their relationships with the Algonquians were fractured and the Croatoans were already forced to ration their crops. The colonists would not be able to rely on the Native Americans for much longer. But none of the assistants wanted to leave their families behind. As a result, the colonists begged John White to go. He was the best person to get the job done quickly and effectively. White was weary. He didn't want it to appear as if he had abandoned his people. Not to mention, he feared for his family's safety while he was away, especially his new granddaughter. The settlers agreed to sign a contract to protect his belongings and his family. On August 27th, John White and 12 other crew members sailed back to England. Midway through their journey, the ship was caught in a storm that steered the vessel far off course. Eventually, they landed on the shores of Ireland, and from there, they were able to safely return home. By then, it was already November of 1587. White wanted to be quick. His first stop was to meet with Sir Walter Raleigh, get supplies, and immediately prepare a trip back to America. He hoped he'd be given a fleet of seven or eight fully stocked ships by spring of 1588. Winter came and went. As each day passed, White became more eager to return to his daughter and grandchild. Thankfully, 
Raleigh was equally as invested in the families left behind and saw to White's demands. But just as the fleet was scheduled to depart in the spring, White received an order forbidding him to leave. England had just gotten word that Spain's armada was about to invade. A war was coming, and the Queen insisted that England needed every last ship in case they needed to retaliate. While England waited for the Spanish Armada to attack, White looked for a loophole to get around the order, and somehow he found one. We're not entirely certain what strings he pulled, but White managed to detach two ships from his old companion, Grenville's fleet. On April 22, 1588, White set sail with those two ships, a fresh batch of supplies, and a group of new colonists. But just after a few days at sea, they encountered enemy ships. By May, the two ships were so battered that they had no choice but to return home to England for necessary repairs. White never gave up on his mission to return to his family. Raleigh and investors were losing interest by the minute, especially in the wake of war. But by March of 1589, almost a year after his initial attempt, White's mission gained a second wind. White's old friend Thomas Harriet published a book on the colony, which became instrumental in gaining new backers. With an influx of cash, progress could be made. In the early months of 1590, nearly three years after he left Roanoke, White's new fleet was ready to return but they were setting out under one condition. They had to privateer any enemy ships spotted as they went. It wasn't until mid-August of 1590 that White's fleet finally dropped anchor in the outer banks off Roanoke Island. White was overjoyed when he spotted smoke rising in the distance. He was certain the colony was still alive and well. The next morning, he woke up eager to return to his daughter and grandchild. He began leading the new crew to the settlement. As White and his men arrived at the colony, they noticed a tree carved with the letters C-R-O. But the colonists themselves were nowhere to be found. Maybe they had moved. White recalled the colony's plans to one day leave Roanoke Island and migrate elsewhere. But as White wandered through the settlement, he noticed that many of the homes hadn't been dismantled. They were intended to be easily taken down and rebuilt with convenience. On one entrance post, he noticed the word Croatoan was carved. But there appeared to be no sign of a distress signal. Instead, the crew found guns and other weapons left behind. It almost appeared that the colonists had left in an orderly fashion. White suspected that they migrated down to Croatoan, he instructed his crew to move the ship south and re-anchor in that area. But as the crew attempted to pull up the anchors, a cable snapped and left them with only one anchor remaining. Their food supply was already dangerously low, and they were almost out of fresh water. Proceeding would be too dangerous. The crew decided the best plan was to return to the West Indies, where they could re-up their freshwater supply. Their hope was to return to Croatoan in the spring, but they never would. Storms forced the crew to return to England, and the mystery of what happened to the colonists, to White's daughter and granddaughter, remained unsolved. 
Sometime in the early 1600s, Raleigh sent another crew to Roanoke. But the men did little work to search for the colony. Instead, they gathered the wood and roots that had been in demand back in Europe and returned home just after one month. Many believe that Raleigh didn't want to learn the fate of the colonists. If they were found dead, his project was a failure. If it remained uncertain, he could still find funding for future endeavors. To this day, no one is certain what happened to the settlers of the Roanoke colony. Which is why next week, we'll take a deep dive into the many theories that attempt to explain what happened to the lost colony. Like the possibility that the colonists were not able to survive the conditions of the new world. Drought, famine, or disease might have brought about their end. They may have resorted to cannibalism just to stay alive. We'll also explore the possibility that the settlers banded together with the Croatoan tribe for resources and protection. Some may have even assimilated. And finally, we'll examine whether the Roanoke colonists decided to move further north towards friendlier environments. A set of stones uncovered in the northern part of North Carolina during the 1930s may tell the tale of the lost Roanoke colony after all. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with part two on the lost Roanoke colony. For more information on Roanoke, amongst the many sources we used, we found Roanoke, the Abandoned Colony by Karen Ordal Kupperman extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 